You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Now, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Red Circle, wrote the following pertinent paragraph. And he's talking about uh, Holmes. He took down the great book in which day by day he filed the agony columns of the various London journals. Dear me, he said, turning over the pages, what a chorus of groans, cries, and bleedings. What a rag bag of singular happenings, but surely the most valuable hunting ground that was ever given, given to the student of the unusual, and that is the Agony Column. That's my show, that's where I took the name from. With me tonight, I have two fantastic superstar authors. Here we are sitting in this lovely book cafe. Next to me is Meg Wolitzer. She's the author of Sleepwalking, Hidden Pictures. This is your life. Surrender Dorothy, the wife the position and the ten-year nap. Her new novel is The Uncoupling. And next to her is Alta Ifland, who grew up in Romania and emigrated to the United States in 1991. She started her career as a writer in the French language and begin, ri began writing in English in 2005. Her first book of prose poems was Voice of Ice. She's also written Elegy for a Fabulous Word, World, and her newest book is Death in a Box. Thank you for joining me, Alta and Meg. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to start with a reading from each author. Um, Meg? Sure. Fire it off. Let's hear the beginning of the, her new novel, The Uncoupling. People like to warn you that by the time you reach the middle of your life, passion will begin to feel like a meal eaten long ago, which you remember with great tenderness. The bright points of silver, the butter in its oblong dish, the corpse of a chocolate cake, the leaning back in a chair at the end, slugged on the head and overcome. Dory Lang had always thought there was a little cruelty in such a warning. It was similar to how, when she had a baby, people always tried to clue her in on what they were sure would befall her. Once, long ago, Dory and her infant daughter were riding a bus in the city when an old woman leaned over and said, May I tell you something, dear? She had a kind face full of valleys and faults. Dory imagined she was about to describe the baby's beauty, in particular the curve of the mouth, and she made her own mouth assume a knowing, pleased modesty. But what the woman said, leaning even closer, was, you will never have another day in your life that is free of anxiety. There was a little private pleasure to be taken in the fact that that old woman, though she was of course correct, was now dead and Dory was not. <laughs> As for the warnings about the disappearance of passion, Dory recognized the sadism stitched into the words. Because the love lives of the women who'd said such things had gone soft and pulpy and tragic, they took a little comfort in telling as many women as they could that someday such a change would happen to them too. Dory and Robbie felt they were exempt from such an outcome, assuming that even when they were so old that they appeared interchangeable, even when his ankles were as narrow and hairless as hers, and her lips were as thin and collagenless as his, and their pubic hair could have belonged to Santa Claus, even when they resembled those dried apple dolls sold in the gift shops of folk museums, they would sleep together frequently, happily, and not just gently, but with the same gruff, fierce purpose as always. 
Around them, in other houses in their neighborhood, there would be a terrible pile-up of non-sex-having couples, all bone and tendon and indifference and regret. Warmly, hotly, tirelessly, in their own bed, they would stay. The Langs had been teaching English at Eleanor Roosevelt High School in Stellar Plains, New Jersey, for a decade and a half when everything changed. It had been an uneventful school year so far. There had been no deaths, neither student nor teacher, and not even any half-hearted prankish bomb threats, which had become as common to suburban high schools as intramural sports. Robbie and Dory Lang began that year at Eleanor Roosevelt, Elro, everyone called it, with the same optimism they almost always felt. It had grown tempered in recent years since the economy had tumbled, and certain concrete signs of optimism were no longer as central a part of the school experience. The smell of pencils, for instance, with their suggestion of wood shop and campgrounds, and the promise of some precocious kid's standout in-class essay. Pencils still lurked, fragrantly, but you had to look for them, and they seemed outnumbered by all things with a keyboard. Still, though, the Langs were hopeful. Still, they thought it would be a good year. Together, they were often spoken of in one breath by the other faculty members as Robbie and Dory Lang, or just Robbie and Dory, or by the students as Mr. and Ms. L, those two married, easygoing, still fairly young English teachers who walked the halls with a genial air. There were some teachers at Elro who lived to crack down on the kids. Where is your pass, they would demand, of a boy with a mouth freshly wet and slack from the water fountain. What? What? said the boy, stammering, dripping. But the kids knew that Dory and Robbie weren't out to get them. Even their pop quizzes were humane. At just past 40, they were both good-natured, decent-looking, tallish, and as dark red-headed as Irish setters. Robbie wore egghead eyeglasses that had become fashionable in recent years. He had a hard shield of a chest, and he rode a bike on weekends through the smooth streets of the neighborhood. Each morning, he unscrewed one of the green glass canisters on the countertop and poured himself a dusty bleat of oat and twig, pious about his intake, wanting to live a long time so he didn't miss a second with his wife or daughter. The Langs were young, but not too young, old, but not too old. Girls often exclaimed over Dory's boots, which dated back to her Brooklyn days and were the approximate color of caramel, narrowing to a subtle point. Not quite the boots of a snarling female rocker, but not the boots of a hiker with bags of muesli swelling her pockets either. The girls also liked Robbie's pale, much laundered work shirts, which by third period he'd invariably rolled up at the sleeves, revealing arms with a light spatter of goldenrod hair. Neither Robbie nor Dory repelled or depressed the kids the way their parents tended to, nor were they like the kids themselves, who had unfinished faces and piercings that punctured the most tender membranes of their bodies like buckshot, the kids with their energy drinks, their extreme sport injuries, and with their restless need to be in touch through some device, even if in real life they'd only been apart long enough to go to the bathroom. What are you up to? Peeing. When will you be back? Look up, I am back. <laughs> in the time they'd spent in the English department at Eleanor Roosevelt, Robbie and Dory had both been named Teacher of the Year with surprising frequency. Once in a while, an art teacher with a head sprouting dreadlocks or the unusually lenient Spanish teacher, Senor Mandelbaum, busted up the monopoly, but for years at a time, husband and wife had predictably passed the honor from hand to hand. It was as if they'd each said to the other, okay, this year you be the better teacher. 
This year, you be the one who remains in the classroom tacking up pictures of J.D. Salinger and Maya Angelou with captions like, for Christ's sakes, Jerry, you were never a phony, or so why does it sing, Maya? Meanwhile, I'll be the one who ducks out the moment school is over, telling the class over my shoulder, don't forget to check e-signment for tonight's homework. And for those of you who can't stand to wait, I'm asking you to read until the part where he sees Daisy Buchanan again. Wait, and until who sees who, someone would ask? But it was too late. Their teacher was out of there, done, gone. Robbie and Dory gracefully and uncomplainingly took on these roles, and then the following year they switched. They had met at a hotel in Minneapolis during an education conference in the earliest, most know-nothing days of their teaching lives. Teachers flowed through the revolving doors, laughing, gesturing, using the words curriculum and curricular. Robbie Baskin, 24 years old then, an age when not really being beautiful falls under the category of beautiful, was in the bar off the polished hotel lobby, sitting on a high stool with his long, weedy legs hanging down. He was talking with two female teachers, all their voices loose and careless, and Dory Millinger of Brooklyn, age 23, waited closer. He was telling the women, here's a sentence that one of my students actually wrote. At the time that Virginia Woolf and James Joyce were writing, the world was very much as it is today, though to a lesser extent. <laughs> the women laughed as if he'd told them something uproarious and filthy. Dory thought that if she'd been sitting there, she would have laughed a lot too, for she would have wanted him to like her. She'd seen him on a panel that afternoon called Young Teacher as Mentor Friend, and he'd been funny and courteous and brief, unlike the man sitting beside him who'd held fast to the microphone. Robbie among the women now seemed just as much at ease, and when she came closer and told him she'd liked what he'd said on the panel, that those were the same issues she thought about, his face became vivid and alert. Oh, no, wait, he said as she turned to walk back into the crowd, and he caught up with her, taking his drink and arching and angling among the other teachers, going past the stick-thin Ichabod crane types and the pigeon-breasted older females with their brooches. For some reason, teachers liked brooches. A table was free at the big picture window with its curtain of hanging metal beads, and they sat there alone, two young neophyte high school teachers, one from Brooklyn, one from Pettier, Vermont, fingering the already fingered nuts in their little tin bowl. Inevitably, on the last night of the conference, they slept together. There had been a closing party in the hospitality suite, and they stayed as long as they could until finally they were pinned in a corner with a few other teachers while an old, distinguished Southern education pioneer grew agitated about the state of the American high school. Come, Robbie said when the man went to get some cheese. Many flights up in Dory's hotel room, she lay back with her head squarely on the pillow, and Robbie Baskin sat above her, both of them smiling as if they'd won something. There, where the walls were covered with a twiny fabric that probably rendered them perfect vessels for sound transmittal, they discovered that their long, similar bodies worked well together. Robbie was fervent, effective in bed. He buried himself in her. His heart worked so hard it seemed like a thing that might leap away. She thought that she could do this with him forever, watching his time and life slipped away as other people went to jobs and made dinner and ironed and talked. In bed at first, and then later when he visited her in Brooklyn, and even much later when he left Vermont for good and moved in with her, they shouted in big voices or squeaked or hummed with industry and focus. They both noticed that they perspired roughly the same amount, and it was never overpowering, but instead more like a delicate broth. Chickeny, Robbie commented once, the bouillon of love. <laughs> Meg Wollister, thank you very much.
Alta. Okay, this is going to be very different. So first, this is a book of short stories. And um, they are sort of eclectic, but some of them are written in a sort of a fantastical uh, mood. Uh, some of them are inspired by some folk tales. And this is one of those stories. This is the title story, Death in a Box. In the days when death wasn't hidden behind a plastic door in a rectangular-shaped, odorless funeral home, but was life's sister, beauty was clothed in the enigmatic glow of death and walked in its shoes. Then, gradually, death's mischievous twinkle in the eye was replaced by icy terror. But when I grew up, some people still remember death's playfulness and thought that if only they could beat it at its own game, they would eventually cheat death and escape its inexorability. My godfather was one of them. Of his wife, only a black and white marriage photo had been kept, with a groom and bride immortalized in their starch stiffness. And the bride, with that look only death can put on certain young faces as if it were the real groom. The bride with that misty, death-suffused gaze drifting toward nothing and already conjuring up nothingness. For this bride's theft, my godfather couldn't forgive death. So he decided to catch it up and lock it up in a, to catch it and lock it up in a box. I should say here that boxes had a particular significance in our family. To begin with, I was, and still am, a passionate box collector. I collect them in all sizes and shapes, from the very small to the big ones, but I usually prefer rectangular wooden boxes. As a child, I kept them in a locked cabinet, each of them inside a bigger one, like Russian dolls. In our house, the long hallway, which crossed it from one end to the other, stopped in front of a storage room full of broken or discarded objects. Sculptures missing an arm, bicycle wheels, dolls deprived of their heads, a box of walnuts for the Christmas cakes, which we didn't celebrate, but we did have Christmas cakes each year and call them December cakes. Various parts of my brother's mutilated toys, soldiers or cars, and in the middle of it all, a huge wooden box made of cherry, the forbidden box. Under no circumstances should you open that box, my mother told us. And if you die, can we open it? <laughs> if I die and you open the box, you'll be struck dead on the spot. Dozens of times we opened the door and knelt by the dark box, smelling it and touching it lightly as if to see if it would open itself to us and let us see its secret. But never, never did we even consider lifting its lid. And yet the day came, and how could it have been otherwise, when after entering the storage room and kneeling by the box in the empty house full of unbearable silence, I knew I would open it. 
And although I didn't entirely believe that I would be struck dead on the spot, I was convinced that my deed wouldn't remain unpunished. Not so much by my mother as by the box itself. By what was inside the box. I closed my eyes and tried to regulate my breathing. I thought of all the possibilities to go on without opening the box or to open it and then I stayed near the box for minutes attempting to find a little hole through which I could peek and thus cheat both myself and the box. But the wood was perfectly smooth without a single hole in it. I stayed and hoped for a miracle. I don't remember how or what I felt when I finally lifted the lid, but I did it. I opened it without looking, at first closing my eyes with all my power, then turning to them toward the ceiling and staring at it until I finally found the strength to look inside. I thought my vision was blurred. I blinked several times and looked again. There was no mistake. In the box, there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. What kind of a joke was that? I kicked the box, angry. Then I thought that maybe my brother had taken whatever was inside. How could I, but how could I find out without betraying the fact that I looked? I certainly couldn't tell my mother. And as for my father, he didn't exist. Or rather, he existed as a shadow that carried a newspaper around. Maybe it was my father who had been hidden inside the box and then annihilated through some kind of sorcery. It was quite possible my mother was capable of anything. <laughs> Maybe we'd been eating his limbs and organs for months and the box was now ep empty, waiting for its new occupant. I blinked again. Or maybe, maybe someone's death had been hidden inside the box and it only needed one little moment to jump out and go into the world to find him. I quickly closed the lid. It was death in a box, death in a box. Soon afterwards, my godmother died. I can only blame childhood's insouciance for the fact that I didn't even feel guilty. On the contrary, I felt slightly proud for being the only one in possession of this incredible secret that one can hide someone's death in a box. And I began to act in accordance with the importance of the secret I held. Thus, one day I entered the jack-in-the-box, and instead of asking for a burger, with the most candid eyes and sweet voice, I said, Sir, could I please have some death in a box? I didn't wait for the poor clerk's reaction. I was out in a second, enjoying the triumph of my courage all by myself. But apparently I wasn't the only one to know the secret. For one day while visiting my godfather, I saw him holding our box as he was talking to himself with glassy eyes and transfigured features. The box was open like a net extending its invisible arms for some fish or at least a butterfly. And my godfather was murmuring with a chanted voice of someone casting a spell or trying to lure an inflexible lover into his bed. Come here, dear, dear death. Oh, come here. Come back in the box, back in the box. Was he hoping to catch back his wife's death? 
Whatever he was trying to do, I thought he was very funny and ran out to fetch my cousins. Then we all came back and circled him with pink lollipops in our mouths, screaming and mocking him as we jumped up and down on the floor. And, we, and he kept chanting, come here, dear, dear death. Oh, come here, come back in the box, back in the box. We laughed so hard our mouths hurt. We left my godfather there, hopelessly chasing death. And when I returned in the morning, I found him inside the box, with his limbs stiff and his eyes mirroring death's petrified gaze. I touched him, and when I felt his coldness, I fled, yelling at the top of my lungs. Death is back in the box, back in the box. Well, you know, Alta, you suggested that you guys were very different, but I think yeah. there's actually quite a bit in common. Now, let's talk a little bit about Meg's book, because what we read was uh, the setup. And Meg, you do a fantastic job of creating an, an average American suburb. I mean, really, it's beautifully evoked and, and very even-handed. Um, do you actually live in the suburbs? No, I grew up. I grew up in a suburb on Long Island, um, and you know, I for me, it's so evocative to this day. Although I guess wherever you came of age remains, I think, the most evocative thing your whole life. That moment, mm -hmm. and I just remember walking along turnpikes, and the big thing I was going toward was like a fast food place with my friends, and just feeling kind of unclean in some way. I mean, just sort of feeling the sort of shine of adolescence, and uh, it was both, it, I didn't know at the time, I mean you marinate in your experience when you're living your life, and I didn't know at the time that eventually I'd, you know, grow up and write about that. Well, what you write about in your book um, takes that suburb and, and has a little bit of magic seep through it. There's a spell. So talk about the decision to create such a, a beautifully evoked real setting and then just tweak it sideways with a little bit of magic. Yeah, it's not really in the, uh, in the excerpt that I read so much, but the book is about a spell that falls upon this suburb, this made-up suburb of Stellar Plains, New Jersey, causing all the women and girls to stop sleeping with men and boys. And it's, it takes place during the production of, of, a high school production of the play Lysistrata, which has this effect. And I don't know if it actually has that effect, but I don't think most high schools really put on Lysistrata. It's a very body, <laughs> dirty play. But I did, you know, I had never written anything with anything fantastical in it, although I've certainly liked a lot of fiction that does do that. It had always seemed sort of outside my sphere. And this time around, I came to it in, a, in perhaps a backwards way. I knew that I wanted to write a book about female desire over time, kind of tracking female desire over time. But I didn't want it to be a book about women complaining about the waning sex lives or, or sort of, you know, ambivalence that they felt. And I thought, how, how to do that? And then I thought, well, you know, falling in love is a kind of spell. I mean, to, for two people to say to each other, we feel this way and we must be in touch all the time, they both agree to something, but it's this thing that comes upon them. And of course, falling out of love or even falling out of sort of erotic love is a spell too. And then I even took it further and I thought, okay, well, 
the big thing is that books are a spell. So here I've got this play, Lysistrata, which was written in 411 BC, and everybody knows it to this day. Oh yeah, the sex strike play. And how is it that books, even though we're in this age of technology when we fear that you know, kids are being seduced away from books, how is it that books actually still have this hold over us? So with all this talk in my head, this chatter, this jabber of spells, I figured that, oh yeah, the book has to be about a spell. But I didn't want the characters to ever know that they were under one. So they never know, but we do. Now, um, Alta, in, in your book, or in your book and in the, the story you read, you also kind of uh, use something of the fantastic, just a twist of the fantastic to externalize our thoughts about death. And that's what I think is the real power of this kind of toolkit, is that once you, you can just take a tiny tweak of reality and then that gives you the power and the ability to speak openly about things that otherwise are really hard to describe. So you, you go after death. That's, that's big game. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in that specific, I mean, I think it's different from story to story. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Meg's book is more coherent because it's a novel. Um, but for example, in the story that I read, um, I would say that the fantastic basically for me was inspired from folk tales that I read when I was a child in Romania, which were, uh, I guess, Romanian folk tales or maybe Russian and translated into Romanian. And um, when I read the story, I didn't write it with the idea of being, I just wrote it the way it came to me. But after I wrote it, I started to think about it and I thought I could identify maybe two folk tales that maybe they were probably in my subconscious. Um, and they all have something about death and, and a box. Um, but really, I didn't think about it when I wrote it. So one of them is, is a very famous folk tale in Romania, which is called, um, Youth Without Old Age and Life Without Death, a very beautiful tale in which um, this prince leaves his parents and goes in search of the place where you find youth without old age and life without death. So he stays there for God knows how long, and then he remembers one day he remembers his parents, and he decides to come back. And he comes back, and on his way back, everything is very different from the way he remembered it because thousands of years have gone by because he was coming from the place where there was no death. And finally he arrives, arrives at the ruins of the, um, the castle and there he sees a box and he opens the box and death comes out of the box and says, oh, I've been waiting for you for so long. That's <laughs> really, a, it's, a, it's a tale that it was obviously very important for me when I grew up, but I, as I say, I did not think of it at all. It's only after I wrote the story that I thought, well, it must have been somewhere in my head. Um, it had cast a spell over you. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the idea that what you were talking about, Meg, about um, how books cast a spell over us and how love cast a spell over us. So uh, talk about developing you know, the, the effect that you use, as it were, as a prose effect of writing about this, the spell and how it kind of creeps out 
into the, the populace because I think it, it one of the things that's interesting is that gives you it gives us a window into something that again it's really difficult to find uh, a, a good coherent plot line that'll take us through the sex lives of, of a bunch of suburban couples and yet you managed to do that and it's really entertaining well because thank you because I'm embodying this spell, but it's a cold, hard wind that blows into these bedrooms and kind of up the nightgowns of these women, and then they suddenly say, no, I'm done, or just turn away, or break up with boys, or whatever it is in each case. Um, I got to kind of track it as it went through this town, and therefore go into, you know, into the emotional center of relationships, which in a kind of, you know, bolder way than I might otherwise be willing to do. And it allowed me to sort of have a kind of, you know, broad view, really. Oh, that's a pun, I guess. You know, the, the women <laughs> of the town. Um, yeah, that was the alternate title, but my publisher rejected it. The broad view. Uh, I, um, like, there's Dory and Robbie, the main characters, and, and in their situation, they're long married and have always been seen as the couple who, as you hear from this section, the students all look up to and kind of think are sort of cool and the other teachers are maybe a little jealous of because the relationship is so solid and they've always been happy in bed and happy in their relationship and they have a wonderful daughter and when the spell hits Dory she suddenly realizes oh we're older now and it's not the way it once was and once she realizes that she can never go back so in each case when the spell hits a woman there's something real that she thinks and her daughter who's having her first relationship with the drama teacher's son um, is absolutely madly in love with this boy and excited by him and when the spell hits her she realizes oh wait this isn't going to last we're each going to go off on our different lives and then suddenly she can't continue any longer so they each have a reason and I basically had to kind of force myself to not be afraid of this magical realism, but to sort of literally have the moment when the sort of, when each one is overcome. I think, you know, for a lot of fiction writers, at least for me, subtlety or nuance is something that we so want to have. And when you're giving that up for something, I mean, you're, you're right that when you write with some kind of fantastical element, you really can go places you didn't go before. And I didn't know this. And I always, I mean, my friends have teased me because I would have scenes in my novel like the silverware scene where they empty the dishwasher. And it would stay at the lowest pilot light of drama. And I think I was afraid of drama. And this allowed me not to be afraid because it's like, well, it's not me, it's the spell. Mm -hmm. So I could really kind of heighten the tension in a way that I, I think I was a little timid. And it's given me that courage. Alta, you know, uh, there are lots of uh, stories in the, kind of the second half of this book, mm -hmm. of your book, that have a more, a little bit more realistic feel, that feel almost autobiographical, but still mm -hmm. you have these kind of glimmers backwards through the fantastic. And uh, could you talk about how, you know, you approach um, kind of autobiography almost in, in part to this with uh, a character who's not, not you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's true. The, um, the second part is more autobiographical, although there is a lot of fiction too, of course. And the stories also are, are a little longer. The first stories are more fable-like. Um, but I realized, well, I, I realized in writing this and also 
just by coincidence, I'm reading now a book by a Russian-American um, writer, Olga Grushin. The, the Line. The Line. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. So, and I realized that it must be something related to my background. I, I mean, both the fact that I'm coming from a former East, uh, communist country and a country which is Eastern European, because I noticed similar things in other writers from that area. And well, just to give you an example, like there is this little story in which um, a man goes uh, into that restaurant, the um, fried brains. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I mean, I guess most people would call it a surrealist story because this man goes in the restaurant and he, the only thing that they have is fried brains, which actually, when I lived in Romania in the last several years, that's the only thing they had in restaurants. They were empty. With, so uh, he had to bring uh, from home bread because they were out of bread. Then the next day he had to bring from home wine because they were out of wine, and so on. And actually, that's a, that's pretty realistic. It was kind of, <laughs> kind of like this. Um, and in the end, the man, one day they, he comes and they, have, they are out of fried brains, which was like <laughs> the only thing they had. And the man in the story takes a vase and hits his head and pulls out his brains and puts in the plate and cooks them. <laughs> so that's the story, which obviously, <laughs> obviously it's not very realistic. Um, and yet it is. I mean, it's where I come from. It is in the sense that, OK, everything could have happened, except, of course, that he couldn't have, it, have eaten his brains. But I notice a similar way of writing literature and other writers from the area. And I'd never thought about it before. I, I, and, and for example, the German writer Thomas Bernhard, um, who was Western, not Eastern, but he did say something that often exaggeration is the best way of telling the truth. And I think in, in that part of the world, because of the very crazy political reality, writers often use an exaggeration to tell the truth, basically, about a very crazy situation. Well, so. my, my favorite quote is from one of our local writers, Karen Joy Fowler, who says that in a country where Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, can be elected governor of the state of California, mimetic realism is inadequate <laughs> to describe reality. You, you, you just can't. It doesn't, you're not able to really get to, to reality unless you start uh, throwing in some special effects. We're surrounded by special effects, and your characters are um, the, the teenage couple are spending a fair amount of their time in a, a little uh, a virtual world, forest. Yeah, it's spelled F-A-R-R-E-S-T, and that horrible kind of spelling of uh, <laughs> the internet. And does this exist, by the way? No, it does not, not exist. I was well, I, maybe it does now, <laughs> but it did not at the time. And it's so funny, actually, because if you try to do any kind of, write any kind of name of a website, it already exists. There's like <laughs> almost no more titles. I've always wanted to do a riff in something about somebody wanting to name a book a line from Shakespeare, but there's like nothing left. So <laughs> they have to do something so mundane, like, you know, exit the servant or exit the maid or something like or, you know, act two, scene three. You know, just like there's no quotes left. We've picked over the bones of Shakespeare. Um, but this couple, Willa and Eli, um, they talk to each other 
on forest and they go into this virtual world and they each have a ninja and he's a centaur and uh, I'm sorry they each have an avatar and she's she's a ninja and he's a centaur and they kind of exist in this deep green wood and actually the the cover of my book um, which is kind of green and lush it's done with uh, something that I learned is called uh, tilt-shift photography. Yeah, yeah, this is big on the internet. It's real, right, and there's all these websites. I knew nothing about this, but it makes real photographs look like toy towns. And uh-huh. so I realized, I hadn't realized this right away when they sent me the cover. You know, your initial feeling when you get your cover is like you stiffen, your spine stiffens, and you know, and you look for something to kind of like say, well, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it took me a really long time before I understood that that the designer was really, in fact, incorporating forests. It's a suburban town. It's like a miniature little suburban town. But, of course, it's the green of, of forest. And as soon as I realized that, I was very excited because it existed on two levels. And everything in a book should have subtext or else it's chick lit. You know, I mean, I, I kind of like... I, uh, so the idea that this couple exists, you know, as real people, but also when they go back to their separate, you know, beds at night and their little suburban homes, they can talk to each other and kind of prance around this wood. Um, there's something very innocent about it and private, too. And, and kind of sweet. Yeah, it's... One of the things you do well in your book is to look at adolescent love and, and mature love and kind of go back and forth and Give us some a vision of that. And, and I'm wondering, you have children right now. Yeah, I do. So did, did you take your, your vision of adolescent love from your memories or your I don't, uh, I don't ever write, oh, yeah, I mine their lives <laughs> for everything <laughs> they're worth. <laughs> oh, what hell good are they You know, for? the hidden cameras in their rooms have been very <laughs> useful to me and the recorders. Um, <laughs> no, I... I would never write about my children. I absolutely never would write about my children. I feel that I, you know, having a writer for a mother already means that, you know, I mean, it already means what it means, and I I think that I respect their privacy. But it's some combination of my general observation about them and their generation, as well as my own memories. Um, You know, I'm sure I got things wrong for this era, because I didn't really, you know, I don't research. I try to just sort of see what the essence of it is. But I see that for them, like this little joke in here about, you know, the two people sort of texting each other when they're right there, look up, I am, you know, I am here. Um, it's easy as, as someone my age to feel sort of cynical and depressed about that kind of communication. But then I started to think about it and think, well, what, how, I mean, this is a kind of only connect situation for them, and it's not the way I choose to connect. But I know that my 16-year-old son, it's very important to him to speak to his friends, and I, you know, it's, and he really needs to do that in that back and forth way. And I need to let him. I mean, of course, I need to let him. But it is a, it's a kind of intimacy that I nece- not can't necessarily understand. But I see that it's there, and it has an immediacy. It's not, is it? Do I feel bad because it's not as articulate? I mean, you know, we sometimes, like the old days of writing long letters to each other and thinking you're in the Bloomsbury group is, you know, is gone for most of us. But I think that this is something else. And they need their own cohort. And I have to sort of understand that. Alta, you write a lot about uh, family in your book. 
book. It's it's a, really a theme. I mean, we we have uncles and cousins and fathers and mothers, and, and I think it's it, the way you write about your family is really interesting. And it's so uh, you're so involved in your family's lives uh, on on a level that's that's so interesting and different from what I'm used to. So <laughs> t talk about <laughs> writing about that and bringing that out because mm -hmm. it's so. Uh, even the stuff that's your, as you point out in the story with the fried brains, uh, reality is is weirder than any fiction or surreality we might imagine. You live some through some uh, through some, as they would say, interesting times. Yeah. Well, um, actually, in in this book, the stories in which members of the family appear are. Not as many. I think you were also thinking of the previous book, yeah, Elegy. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, th my previous book and this book were supposed to be, we were initially one manuscript and the publishers cut them, so now I have two books. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so is your, qu is your well, question? Talk about, I, I mean, the way you talk about uh, how you write about your family. Oh. And, and, and okay. why? <laughs> well, um, and how much of it is fiction? And, and yeah, I, I mean, if you're when you're writing about these are these are clearly fictional stories. Yeah, somewhat. There's also clearly autobiographical mm -hmm. material in there. Um, how well, do you approach that? Yeah. How, what does your family think too? Mm. <laughs> well, I'll start with that part. My family doesn't think anything because they don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the advantage of uh, having a family living on a different continent who doesn't have an internet. <laughs> so uh, that's one. And and uh, related to what Meg just said that you know if you're a child and you have a mother who writes, that might be unfair to the child. I would also feel this like some kind of protection. I, I don't want my parents or whoever to read this and to think, huh, that's what she thinks about me. Although it's all mixture of fiction and reality. It's, you know, it's a mixture. But the fact that they cannot read it just is fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that line, and I don't know who said it, but you should write as if everyone you knew were dead. And, um, you know, it, it's true, because when you hold back as a writer, when you yeah. edit because you imagine someone reading it, the work, the work is diluted, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So um, definitely, there are members of my family. They are very present. In particular, my mother, who is a very strong, she's a very strong personality. Um, she is present somewhat in uh, false memories of not myself. Uh, although the facts there are mixed with a lot of fiction, but still, the character of the mother is to a large extent modeled on my own mother. Um, what else? Uh, there are other members of the family that are invented and they correspond more to some images that I had in my head for many years that I kept with me of, and, and, I, and I made them into members of my family, for example.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.